are dimensions, those freedoms of movement through time and space, the most basic, the only indivisible element of all infinity. Are they the building blocks also for consciousness, both biological and extracausal? Let us explore these ideas on episode three, where dreams come from, dimensions and the string theory. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harrison. Today's lecture is on dimensions and the string theory. We are going to explore the ethereal and show how it creates the material. What we are talking about are dimensions, freedoms through time and space. We will begin by showing you the familiar dimensions that may not seem so familiar after we talk about them. Each additive dimension will give an exponential amount of possibilities over the one that preceded it, near infinite amount of possibilities. We will show how they combine to form our reality, our universe, possibly the multiverse, and even hyperspace. We said in our introduction, what drives the metaphysical, the religious, is the idea that there is something instead of nothing. Now we will define nothing. Nothing is dimension zero, something without volume and without time. It is an abstract idea. It is represented as a point, but if you take a pencil and you put a point on a piece of paper and look at that point under a microscope, it'll be a little pile of graphite. It'll have height, width, and depth. It'll also change over time. The graphite will wear off and the paper will oxidize. If you set up an infinite amount of these points in linear fashion, you'll have the first dimension, the line. The line in our reality also does not exist as a mathematical concept. The line has length and nothing else. It does not have time. Nowhere in our universe does this exist in reality. A Greek mathematician once lamented that it was impossible to have an army cross a bridge going in a straight line. They would obviously have to cross an infinite amount of points. Yet, they can. If you intersect an infinite amount of lines, then you have the second dimension, the plane. The plane has freedom in length and width, but no height at all intersect an infinite amount of these planes around a center, and then you have your third dimension, volume. The third dimension gives you height, length, and width. Still, this volume is an abstract idea, because volume does not exist anywhere within our universe without time. Einstein was the first to discover this, and he called this the time-space fabric. This fabric, however, was not the flat surface of Euclidean geometry. Einstein used Ramadian geometry, the geometry of curved spaces. He showed that mass curved space, and the curvature of space showed mass and energy how to move. Gravity was explained as the curvature of space. Gravity doesn't pull you in. Space pushes you to the center, like a three-dimensional funnel. 
take one dimension out, it's easier to view. Put a bowling ball on a trampoline and it indents the trampoline, the rubber mat. If you throw a marble at it, you'll see that it starts to spin around the bowling ball. If we're in a frictionless environment such as space and have a more natural set of parameters such as the earth is the bowling ball and the moon is the marble, the moon can spin around the earth indefinitely. What we haven't quite delineated yet is the fourth part of the time-space fabric, that is time itself, a dimension through change. If you look at either the quantum mechanical or the relativistic equations for time, you would see that there is no distinction between going forward in time and going backward in time. In fact, there is no precedent to the present. Certain subatomic particles that undergo no change, such as protons and electrons, can easily go forward and backward in time. In medicine, we use PET scans, which are positive electrons, also called positrons. If you look at their Dirac equations, what you'll see is a positron is an electron that is moving backward in time. The reason that all other systems seem to only move forward in time has to do with the thermodynamic effect of entropy. Entropy is the law that, at least in our universe, all large systems go to disorder. If you drop an egg on the floor and it cracks, it's very difficult to gather up all the pieces and all the lost energy and reconstitute the egg and have it go leap back up on the table. If you unbound Webster's Dictionary and throw it off a tall skyscraper and gather the pages up randomly, you'll see that it's highly unlikely that all the pages are in order from A to Z. If this unbound dictionary with its loose pages came together in perfect order, then we would be in a, in a universe where moving backwards in time is just as easy as moving forward in time. In quantum mechanics, it's explained a little bit differently. It is the collapse of the wave function. When the wave function collapses, that's the present, that's reality. All other permutations of that multi-potential probability wave actually do manifest in some reality, either in a parallel universe or a potential quantum universe. Mathematically, it is just as difficult to take the collapsed wave function and reconstitute into a multi-potential probability wave as it was for our egg that fell on the floor to take all the heat energy and vibration energy and reconstitute the yolk and the shell and leap it back up onto the table from which it fell. Animals with neuronets as brains are hardwired to view time as the present the past as the past and the future as the future. In quantum biology, we will demonstrate theories where the neuronets actually are involved in collapsing the probability wave. But not all intelligence may view the present as superior to the past or the future. Unlike animal neuronets, when quantum computers are developed, they may give a more egalitarian view of time, certainly from the time the quantum computer was made to the time the quantum computer is no longer functional. The quantum computer may view time like the quantum equations, giving no special precedence to the present. Now that we have the three large volume dimensions of space and one of time, we have a stable dimensional manifold what Einstein called the time-space fabric or the time-space continuum. And Einstein was the one that first understood its significance. 
Einstein did not see the time-space fabric as a flat fabric like Euclidean geometry. He used Ramadian geometry, the geometry of curved spaces, to explain why the light speed is constant and also why there is gravity. Newton could only calculate gravity as an estimate, but Einstein understood the force itself, as we said earlier, as space pushing in on you. The curvature of space, either through acceleration or through mass, has another effect. It affects time and distance. Though it is true that all movement is relative and there is no special movement in the universe, planetary beings will all move basically at the same rate because the universe expands at the same rate. This means that any person living on any planet or any being living on any planet throughout the uh, universe would understand that the universe is 13.6 billion years old. They may not use the unit years, but the, but the relative uh, time would be the same. Now, if we viewed somebody that was, uh, say, billions of light years away, the time would not be the same because of relative velocity. The further you are, from something, the further, the faster it moves. And it's easy to see. Take two points on a balloon that are close together and one that's far away and start blowing up the balloon. You'll see that the two points that are farthest away are moving faster than the two points that are closer together. This is interesting because space, unlike mass and energy, has no restriction to the light speed. So the farther out you go in the universe, the faster space expands away. Space expands at one point so fast that it exceeds the speed of light, and this we'll eventually call the event horizon of our universe. It is the event horizon because any object within that space, as it exceeds the speed of light, at least relative to us, will uh, disappear from our view and disappear from our universe. So as, a mo as an object in our universe moves away relative to an observer, as it approaches the speed of light, it never seems to go beyond the speed of light. And what happens is, because of the curvature of time and space at the, and the barring of time from space and the barring of space from time, time starts to dilate. It means it gets slower. So, um, and distance... The space, space that is contained within the object seems to get smaller, so the object also gets smaller. So as you measure velocity as distance over time, you get to the point where, the, where distance over time bounces exactly, so you never are able to exceed the speed of light relative to another observer. There is another reason also. As an object accelerates towards the speed of light, and this would be relative to an observer, usually on a planet, so they're at that space normal speed, the regular expansion of the universe, they begin to curve the space-time continuum. Curving of the space-time continuum is the same as gaining mass and energy. As you curve the space-time continuum, everything around you feels that curvature as gravity or acceleration, which are exactly the same. So as you move faster and curve the time-space fabric more acutely, you get more and more massive. As you approach the speed of light, the mass of anything, even the smallest electron, would be equal to all the mass and energy within the entire visible universe. So there's not enough mass and energy to kick you above the light speed known in physics as tau zero. Just one little caveat. If you were the observer and, and you were watching somebody in a spaceship 
um, approaching the speed of light, what you would see is that they were slowing down and getting very, very thin in the direction of their motion. But the people on that spaceship wouldn't notice anything. They would feel time is going by normally. But when they looked out their window at the standard expanding universe, what they would notice is that the universe had become alive. The galaxies start to spin. Millennia go by in seconds. Stars form in front of their eyes, flare, burn themselves out, and end up as white dwarfs or black holes. Distortions of time and space allow the astronauts moving at close to the speed of light to traverse the universe, maybe even in one lifetime. Though they all stay under the speed of light relative to each other, as time and space conspire to keep the observed traveler under the light speed tau zero. Theoretical designs such as hydrogen ramjets may actually be able to suck up hydrogen, cause continuous confusion and acceleration, and reach this velocity. One dilemma that Einstein was not able to figure out was why an electromagnetic wave can propagate through a vacuum. All other known waves need some kind of medium to travel through. Ocean waves need water. Sound needs air. But what was allowing the electromagnetic wave to, to, to reverse the vacuum? In the 19th century, there was assumed that there was a luminous ether, ether that uh, filled the vacuum of the universe. But two researchers, Mendelssohn and Morley, disproved this. Through light interferometry, they figured out that the light speed was the same whether the Earth was going towards the sun one season or going away from the sun in another season. If there was a medium, when the Earth was going away, light would have had to slow down. Then Einstein received a paper from Theodore Kaluza and he thought he had the answer. Using Einstein's own tensor equations, he added another spatial dimension and it showed that light propagated through a fourth spatial dimension. And when Einstein analyzed these equations, what he found was Maxwell's equations. Maxwell's equations are something still taught in physics, very difficult equations on electromagnetism. I think he published them around the 1850s. And they showed a couple of things. They showed the relationship of, of charge to current. They showed that electromagnetic waves were electric waves perpendicular to magnetic waves. And without even knowing why, Maxwell's equations always gave the answer of 300,000 kilometers a second for the speed of light. It would never change. It was part of the mathematics predicted even before there was a reason why. So by adding an additional dimension, Kaluza had combined gravity to electromagnetism. Tesla used these equations to develop his theories on alternating current and with uh, the backing of the Westinghouse Corporation actually built Niagara Falls Generator, the first industrial generator that transduced gravity in the form of falling water to electricity. These tensor equations of Einstein were actually very popular to figure out what reality was. Many tried different uh, methods. Schwarzschild actually was a uh, physicist but was drafted into the German army as a gunner, and he figured out the distance between the singularity and, and the uh, event horizon using Einstein's tensor equations. He did this while dodging um, artillery shells and poisonous gas. The trend continued to try to add dimensions into the equations to better illuminate what reality was. 
Actually, it's not that difficult to put dimensions into mathematics. I don't want to go over a lot of complex mathematics, but there is an equation, the inverse square law that you've learned in high school that was first uh, invented by Isaac Newton and says that um, a field diminishes by the inverse of, its, of the square of the distance. To add another spatial dimension, a fourth spatial dimension, then the equation is changed to the inverse of the cube of its distance. So a field will drop off much more rapidly because there's more space for the field to disperse into. Researchers and mathematicians were having difficult, though, describing reality by adding dimensions. They were running into divergences and anomalies. They were finding infinities at the end of their equations. They were finding probabilities less than zero and greater than one. None of this made any sense. None of the answers agreed with the standard model, those points of physics, mass, spin, charge, that had been found experimentally. And there was another problem. Where's the other dimensions? We only know of three spatial dimensions and one of time. In the late 1960s, two researchers at CERN, the European Physics Consortium, were looking through some old mathematical books, 200-year-old mathematical books. And what they came upon was something called the Euler Beta Function. And what they did was they just kind of guessed at what numbers should be. They added two more dimensions, and they vibrated it, and they found something very similar to describing the strong force of subatomic particles. However, there were two pesky problems. One, they kept coming up with a particle that wasn't part of the strong force, a zero-mass spin-two particle. They were thinking and thinking about it, and then they figured out what they had found was the graviton. So what they were finding was not just a description of the strong force, they were finding a description of all forces and later all masses. The other problem has to do with our inverse square law problem again. This just didn't plague um, our researchers at CERN, it plagued all physicists dealing with point particles. Because the problem is, if you utilize a point particle and you use the inverse square law, there's going to be a place, and they were using very short distances, distances at the Planck level or below, that um, R becomes zero, so the force of that particle, be it charge or gravity, becomes infinite. So an electron could have the same mass as a black hole of many stars or billions of stars, and that just didn't make sense. In the 1970s, this problem was finally solved by a group at Caltech. And what they did, instead of using point particles, they used a string, a one-dimensional string. And remember, a one-dimensional string has an infinite amount of points. So even at the Planck length, the forces are dispersed in such a way that they concur with the standard model. So now, when they vibrated that string through six compact spatial dimensions, three large spatial dimensions, and one of time, they got physics that was at least in the ballpark of what was expected in the standard model. By ballpark, I mean rough estimation. They used a perturbative approach, which is estimating, getting close. And they used this in five different theories. String theory elucidated five different sub-theories for the calculation of the physics of the vibrating string. 
and these gave varying answers, different coupling constants. Some strings were pictured as linear strings connected to the fabric of time and space, and some were loops of string, free to go as they wish. And since this was all just estimation, it was difficult to really discern what particles were being found by the vibrating string. One of my homeboys, Edward Witten, professor of physics at Princeton, New Jersey, found the answer once more in the tried-and-true method of adding an additional dimension. Now we would have ten spatial dimensions and one dimension of time. And when he did this, all five theories became an estimation of a grander theory called the M-theory. This possibly M may mean membrane. As a string vibrates back and forth, it forms a membrane. It can actually form any dimensional conglomerate up to ten. The seven compacted dimensions form a stable dimensional manifold at the uh, Planck length. And this is, this is called the Calabi-out. The way these seven dimensions are oriented to each other and interact with each other gives the universe its properties. Even with M-theory, we haven't been able to yet elucidate the exact structural interrelation of the seven dimensions. If we knew this, we may be able to figure out the probability wave of the universe itself. Remember, everything is either a particle or a wave. An electron has its own probability wave and may extend locally or out anywhere in the universe or other universes or anywhere throughout infinity. Even a person has a probability wave. If you were to look at somebody's probability wave, they would look basically like them, but a little bit out of focus. But remember, every person's probability wave also extends anywhere throughout our universe in any time in, into the multiverse and even into hyperspace. Like all probability waves, if they find similar waves anywhere out through infinity, they have the possibility of entangling. We have speculated that maybe the neurons in our brain allow for this causality-breaking phenomena through the formation of wormholes and thus enhanced entanglement. At this point, let us try to make a visual analogy of what we've talked about so far with the 11-dimensional time-space fabric. As you know, I like aquatic analogies. However, these are just pictorial representations. There are no true analogous structures in the macroscopic world that could convey the true essence of the time-space fabric of M-theory. Despite this, let us talk about the time-space fabric as an aquatic film. The aquatic film is made up of untold number of little droplets. These are our calabial, the seven dimensions curled up. If you looked into each droplet, you'd see a little bit of, you'd see swirling of the seven dimensions, always in the same proportion and relation. Let's make each of these, in our macroscopic view, five millimeters. From each of these little droplets, a, a hair comes out. This is our one-dimensional string. As you get closer to the film, you notice that it is very agitated. The closer you get, the more agitated it gets. It's once you get below the size of the clobby out, it becomes so agitated you can't even discern that it is any more a film. The agitation of this membrane transmits a type of energy to the string, and every once in a while, the string will vibrate. It vibrates, it splits. Then the two ends of the string hit together, and they form back into one, releasing energy. That energy is released in the form of a wave. 
This is the annihilation of our virtual particle-antiparticle pairs, usually as an electron and a positron. The hairs stick up into a, let's say, the air. The air is our three expanded volume dimensions and dimension of time. So if a type of heat wave forms above the film, as long as the entire wave can return back to the film at some point, this all energy is recycled from the film to the strings and back to the film again. Remember, if part of that wavelength gets cut off by some permanent particle, then the energy will not return back to the film in that area and you'll have a Casimir effect. Then the other structure on this film, what we used to call whirlpools, but I don't like that analogy because the vacuum doesn't really spin. But these are depressions within the film. If you go into one of these depressions, you may come out very locally, or you could come out on the other side of the ocean, or you could come out in the same ocean, but at a different time, or you could come out in a completely different ocean, or you could even come out in a different film ocean that has higher dimensions, but is entangled because of similarities. This oscillating aquatic film does one other thing. It kind of crashes together and forms little bubbles. This is the foam we talked about before, the primordial universes. But the energy of the same waves, or the energy returning from the larger air dimensions above, disrupts these so quickly that they are of no consequence. In this film, where the Calabiao droplets are about 5 millimeters, a little less than a quarter of an inch, most of what you'll see would look exactly like this, the virtual particles forming. But somewhere over quadrillions of square miles of this film, you'll find a little bit different Calabiao with a string. The Calabiao will be exactly the same as other, every other Calabiao, but the string will be longer and very energetic. This string was plucked during the Big Bang when there was enough energy to endow it with a permanent vibratory status. Not only would you notice that the string was longer and vibrated on its own, but all the other strings around it are vibrating in unison. This coupling constant that the vibrating string of the permanent particle vibrates the other, inducing a resonant vibration. These are your virtual particle fields that are formed. They could be, if it's a quirk, it be, could be a quirk and an anti-quirk. They're still virtual particles. They only last at Planck time, but they last long enough to form the structures and fields of the permanent particles, extending their influence at this size analogy over trillions or quadrillions of square miles. Remember how this string vibrates through the seven compacted dimensions in the Calabiao, the three large spatial dimensions, and the one dimension of time gives its characteristics. Since the vacuum has no charge, then if you form a charged particle, say an electron with a negative charge, you must complement it with a positron, an electron with a positive charge. So the permanent particle, such as a quirk, will find the probability wave function of a quirk. It will influence the other strings around it by coupling constants, they also divide, they form quirks and anti-quirks and immediately annihilate. These are the virtual quirk fields. This analogous film ocean also has a type of weather. Not all the strings are attached to the time-space membrane. Some are loops of strings. We talked about this earlier when we talked about a zero-mass spin-2 particle that so confused the original string theorist. This is the graviton. The graviton actually can float above and leave the universe. It just goes right through the membrane, and it actually can go into another universe. Luckily, 
other universes in the multiverse bring their gravitons back. So there is a balancing. The reason gravity is so much weaker than the other forces may have to do with the fact that the graviton leaks across the time-space fabric and out of the universe. So we have a type of evaporation and a type of rain. Remember, this 10-dimensional plus time fabric is the quantum vacuum. Its energy is the reverberations within the quantum vacuum. We think of it like a sheet, but really we're in three dimensions. So the sheet is a plane. So remember, volume is an infinite amount of planes that intersect with a line. And in three dimensions, the lines can be either height, width, or length, or any vector in between. Next, let's try to understand what attributes the addition of dimensions uh, give us. Now, it's, we're only going to talk about the large dimensions because in our mind, we can only understand the large dimensions. The other ones require uh, mathematical computation. But be sure that those compacted dimensions, missing, dimen missing uh, their constituent dimensions, would not be able to form mass and the universe as we know it. To each of our larger dimensions, we're going to add time so we can do a direct comparison. So zero dimension is absolutely nothing. There's really nothing to say about zero dimension. Take an infinite amount of these zero dimensions, and you have your first dimension, the line. A creature that was a line creature would live a terrible life. If such a creature could exist, it could only look forward or look backward. It would have the same view forever. There would be no move, room to move around. All communication with its universe would have to go through a zero-dimensional point at either end. Since it's a line, if we thought of intelligence, it would be like a single-strand neuron. Our neurons, however, are very complex three-dimensional um, structures that inter interact with tens of thousands of other neurons at a time. This one, since it has only length, may not have any function at all. But if it did, it could only answer one question, yes or no. And who could ask such a question? Only the line in front or the line in back? Unless entanglement is allowed in a one-dimensional line. Wormholes, however, seem to require three large spatial dimensions and one of time in order to form. So what attributes would a two-dimensional creature have that could move in both length and width and through time. Edwin Abbott in 1884 actually wrote a story about this. There's a lot of social commentary. Depending on the shape of the flatlanders, they had certain social status. But the main thing we want to think about is how they would function and how they would interact with a three-dimensional creature. Their skin, of course, is the outline of their structure, whether they be a circle, a square, a hexagon. Their homes are squares drawn onto a flat plane. Their secure banks are also squared with big, heavy lines as vault doors. If they saw a three-dimensional creature, they could only perceive it in their own two dimensions. So as the three-dimensional creature goes through the two dimensions, a line would expand, expand, the neck then would, would uh, narrow, the body would expand again, and then he would have two lines as the legs as it goes through, and then the creature would disappear as he went out of the plane of the two-dimensional creature. This three-dimensional creature would have magical powers. Not only would they be able to disappear, but in this bank of, uh, of these flatlanders, which is a big, heavy square, they could just reach in from the top and steal the flat gold. If a flattened lander got sick, 
the three-dimensional creature could also be of some advantageous facility. He could reach into the body and do surgery without having to go through their skin. If the three-dimensional creature spoke to them, the sound would seem to emanate from inside their own body. The three-dimensional creature could make one of these flatlanders completely disappear, just lift them off the plane of the flatland, and the other flatlanders would never be able to see them. The flatlander flying through space would become very disoriented. The only thing he would, when he fell to the floor, would be able to recognize was the shadow of the three-dimensional creature. If the flatlander had the intelligence to understand all this, remember, his brain or her brain would be analogous to a, to a disc that's about the thickness of the Planck length. There's not a lot of computation that can be done on that compared to the neural nets of three-dimensional creatures. But if the flatlander did have some type of intelligence, he would most likely recognize a three-dimensional creature as a god. So what makes a god is the simple addition of a dimension. There's other strange phenomena attributed to lower dimensions. If the one-dimensional line had some source of energy, say a star as a point particle, the entire energy of that star would be concentrated right to the point of the line, at the end of the line. So there would be no diminishing, there would be no room to diminish, so whatever force it was would be maximal. The same uh, with the flatlander, because the um, it's not the inverse of the square of the radius, it's the inverse of the radius. So any heat source or gravity would be much stronger for um, a flatlander than it would be for a three-dimensional creature. So let's say you're a human being and you're four units of distance from the source, then you'll get one-sixteenth the amount of energy. But if you're a flatlander and you're four units from the source, you're going to get you're going to get much more, one-fourth the energy instead of one-sixteenth the amount of energy as the human being. Let us consider other manipulations of dimensions beyond the three volume dimensions for an 11-dimensional universe. We're going to use 11-dimensional universe because we want to use universes that which we can entangle. The string only vibrates as far as we know so far in 11 dimensions and 26 dimensions. Ramanujan, an unknown physicist, probably the most brilliant physicist that ever lived, obscure because he was not a Caucasian and he was not part of the West, developed a universe with 26 dimensions in which the strings would vibrate. If he wouldn't have died in his early 30s from tuberculosis at the turn of the century, he may have been able to elucidate the properties of higher dimensions and even give us higher manifolds from which we can entangle and which the string can vibrate. Imagine what a 26-dimensional universe would be like. We saw what going from a flatland universe to a three-dimensional universe bestowed on the hyperspace creature, that creature being us. It's all in the mathematics. If we met a creature that had a universe of four expanded volume dimensions, and this could happen when we talk about the birthing of universes, it is only the strings that hold in and compactify the seven-dimensional calabial and not allow another volume dimension to break free and expand out. But this certainly could happen either as an aberrancy to a normal birthing or the proliferation of some abnormal universe 
one that we cannot comprehend and may not be able to entangle with. Four enlarged volume dimensions, our creature would live in a cold world as fields would expand out as the inverse of their cube. The one-dimensional creature living four units from the source of energy would receive 100%. In fact, it wouldn't matter how far he was. The flatlanders would receive 25% of the energy, one over four. The human being would receive one-sixteenth the amount of energy, whereas our creature with four expanded spatial dimensions would receive one-sixty-fourth the amount of energy. It's not only that his world is cold, is that his planet may not be able to orbit around the star as gravitational fields decrease rapidly with distance also. So he would have to be very close to his star in order to maintain orbit. Of course, we don't know what taking one dimension from the Calabiao would do to mass and the strong force and the weak force. Despite M-theory, these are still unattainable solutions. If mass, however, was stable, this creature could be highly intelligent. Just as our neurons are able to expand out in three dimensions, the creature's neurons would be able to expand out in a fourth dimension, making a myriad of interconnections. Such complexity of uh, molecular biology may allow for enzymes that repair DNA, that deoxify basement membranes, and this creature may actually be able to combat the laws of entropy and be immortal. However, the lack of one of the compacted dimensions may cause your, his protons, neutrons, and electrons to become unstable. And thus, even though the creature may obtain a type of immortality, his universe could be dissolving away. In our next lecture, the second part of Dimensions of String Theory, we're going to talk about what those compacted dimensions actually mean. Of course, they're important because it seems that all those dimensions are needed in order for the string to vibrate in such a way to become a quark, an electron, a photon, etc. But they have a, an additional meaning that gives us an insight into the universe and the multiverse and possibly even hyperspace. Before I go, I want to make one correction from the vacuum lecture. I gave the background radiation of about 4.7 or 4.8. This was the number that Gamow gave. Gamow actually predicted the background radiation of the Big Bang about 20 years before it was discovered. He used a number that was a bit higher because of uh, the limitations on calculation at his time. Gamow is also very famous. He um, figured out that the reason this, the weak force that materials can radioactively decay is because they use tunneling wormholes. He also figured out that during the Big Bang, what constitutes of mass were produced, and it's basically 75% hydrogen, 24% helium, and 1% lithium. So the true number for the background radiation is 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. One last correction I'd like to make from the vacuum lecture. I sort of ineloquently stated that there was no more energy needed because of inertia. I gave the impression that the dark energy was expanding out the galaxies themselves. What's actually happening 
is space is expanding. Expanding space moves everything apart. We spoke about how points on a balloon that are close together as the balloon expands move slower than points that are far apart. Eventually, expanding space will move away from an observer so quickly that it moves faster than the speed of light. This is the edge of the universe. This is the event horizon of the universe. We should talk about this now because there is a dimensional aspect to this. From the observer, from us, the edge of the universe becomes a two-dimensional sphere. Within that two-dimensional sphere, we will talk about later lectures, every event within the bulk is etched in real physical form, moving out frame by frame at Planck's time at Planck's distance. This is the holographic theory, where we, within the bulk, the three dimensions, are a mere projection of the two-dimensional reality. So we are the illusion, and the event horizon at the edge of the universe is reality in all of its physical form. Moving away faster than the speed of light, it seems very difficult that we'd ever be able to recapture the reality, some event in our past. However, this may be possible if a 26-dimensional manifold is involved. This we will explore later in a lecture devoted to information theory. Thank you very much for your interest in extracausal consciousness. Stay tuned for part two of Dimensions and the String Theory. Bye-bye.